Americans hate one another. I want to say that again. Americans hate one another. Now, you may not feel that on a, on a personal level because you love everybody that's in your circle, but I, I might at least ask you to consider whether what you're experiencing in that inner circle is truly love or whether it is a carefully cultivated and protected agreement. In other words, everybody on my circle of influence thinks like me and talks like me and a good many times even looks like me. So there's no cause for us to ever manifest ill will towards one another, but you let some voice from outside of that circle come in and challenge the assumptions of that circle and the response that you'll have and others that you love will have can sure look an awful lot like hate. And it's easy during this season of American life to blame all of that on politics. But frankly, politics and the animosity and the partisanship and therefore the growing hatred that Americans have for one another in the political realm is really just symptomatic of a much deeper problem of animosity and hatred toward one another. Our politics did not create it. They're a reflection of it. This is why that football fans can brawl in the stands and in the parking lot, sometimes to the point of death. This is why... Middle schoolers and high schoolers can bully an outsider until the point that they, they take their own life. Uh, this is why debates with one another who hold a different viewpoint than what we have are, are typically very personal and just outright mean-spirited. It's because that there is this, this hatred that exists in American life. Americans really hate one another. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as people who claim to be followers of Jesus is are we distinct from that or are we complicit in it? A year or so ago, a pastor invited a conservative news commentator to speak at his, at his church. And in introducing the conservative news commentator, he took a, a, real, a real shot at a liberal conservative news commentator that he considered to be a foil to the cheers of his congregation and the laugh of his congregation. And I guess all of that's okay. It is right. But what do you think that communicated to someone who may be held to those views? Do you think it communicated, well, they love me, or do you think maybe it communicated they hate me? This past summer... Two people who should have known better in the theological realm began to engage one another in a Twitter argument. And the reason that you can't right now in your head recall immediately who that is is because there's so many Twitter arguments that they just get lost in the wash. But both of these people who knew better began to move from debate very quickly into personal attack against one another. I, I, I submit to you that we're living in a world right now where Jesus followers are not offering a solution, but maybe the biggest part of the problem. Let's drill down to even more of a personal level. What would people say about your feelings 
towards someone with whom you disagree if they were to look at your social media feeds. Let me say something to you right now that's probably going to change privacy settings immediately. I, I don't have a Facebook account or a Twitter account that you can find, but I'm out there and I spot check occasionally the members of our church to see how they're doing. <laughs> and frankly, we're not all doing so well. It, it, it seems that anybody with whom we disagree is absolutely not welcome in our circle of influence as a friend or as potentially a recipient of our gospel message. The passage of scripture that we are going to examine today tells us something very simple, and it's really not even arguable, that someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus will be characterized by a radical, self-giving, others-centered, sacrificial kind of love. And if they are not characterized by that radical, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial kind of love, there is no reason to suspect that their claim to be a follower of Jesus is valid. What we will deal with today is serious, serious things. So let's go back and make sure that we can see that this isn't just Derek's word for it. This is Scripture's words for it. Go back and look at verse 7. John writes, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, let me put the Derek Lynch paraphrase on that. He is saying to them, I'm getting ready to share something with you which is not new news. You've heard this before. You heard this from my first encounter with you forward. And the message that they have heard, which we'll see once we get to verses 9 and 10, is that we are to love one another. And John is saying, the reason that you heard that from me from the beginning is because I heard that from Jesus himself. Back in John chapter 13, John details for us, as he reflects on the life of Christ, a, a very significant event in Christ's relationship with his disciples. In verse 1 of John 13 it says, now before the feast of the Passover, this is the night before Christ died, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He demonstrated in a very real, tangible way, I love you in a radical, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial kind of way. How did he demonstrate that? Look at verse 4. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. Now that's that's a cultural thing that's completely lost on us. We don't go to dinner parties where people wash our feet. And if we suspected that that would happen, we would decline the invitation, wouldn't we? This is not something that is common to us. But at special occasions, honored guests would have their feet washed by the lowest on the totem pole in that particular social setting. And Jesus, who would have been the alpha socially... Set aside all the spiritual stuff, but the alpha 
socially in that setting. Didn't call on the one he deemed to be the least, but himself washed their feet as a servant. And then after it was over, he clothed himself again, and he began to teach his disciples. And the heart of the reason he did this was what we see him say in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And then note, he says, just as I have loved you, just as you have seen me love you over the years, and just as I have illustrated my love for you in this, in this radical sacrificial, others-centered kind of giving that I have just loved you with. This is how you are to love one another. You are to love as I have loved you. And so, it is this command that John had preached to them from the beginning, that they love one another as Christ had loved them. And then he goes on in verse 8 to explain in a little more depth. He said at the same time, it's it's, it is a new commandment that I am writing you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So here's what he says. He says, even though it's an old commandment, there's a sense where it's new. And here's how this is a new commandment. You are actually, as the recipients of the life of Christ, go back and look at verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in him in the way in which he has walked. As someone who is living out the life of Christ, who, whose life is manifesting the life of Christ, as you do that and manifest that radical, other-centered, sacrificial, self-giving kind of love, it begins to shine as a light and becomes essentially a, a, a looking glass into another world. There is, there is something radically distinct about you living this kind of thing. And so while it is not a new commandment to you, everyone you encounter and love with the love of Jesus in a radical, other-centered, sacrificial, self-giving kind of way is going to say, what is going on? And light will begin to shine in their lives. And then he gets to the heart of the command. He set it up. We already know what it is, that we love one another but then he is going to state that command in two ways. First, negatively, and then positively. The negative statement of that is verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. In other words, he is saying if your life is not characterized by the radical, other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial kind of love of Christ, then there is every reason in the world... To doubt the validity of your profession of faith in Jesus. That's not me digging hard or doing some kind of wild, seminary-informed exegesis of the text. You hand this to anybody who can read English, they're going to get what he's saying. Then he states it positively. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him... There is no cause for stumbling. If you have a life that is characterized by a radical, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial kind of love, then there, there is evidence in your life in that kind of love to affirm that this person really does follow Jesus, what he proclaims is true. And then he says, in him there is no cause for stumbling. Part of that in him there is no cause for stumbling, would be from the outside looking in. I'm not going to doubt 
that what this person has to say is, is worth hearing. Their life models a consistency. I, I see no reason to doubt or to stumble or to question what you're saying to me. But he goes on to explain it in more depth in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. If you don't know where you are going, what do you do? You stumble. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's the thing. John is saying not only by living the life of Jesus will you not give people a reason to doubt that Jesus and his message are true. It will increase your overall quality of life with Jesus. Because as you live in the light and shine the light, it releases the darkness around you and you will begin to see in your own life that attitude which isn't loving or honoring of Jesus and that action which isn't loving or honoring of Jesus and avoid them as traps and continue in a kind of flywheel kind of effect to grow in your manifestation of the love of Jesus. So John is simply telling us that love for others is a hallmark of being a follower of Jesus. So let's talk about the others piece of that quickly. Who are they? Who are my brothers? He's talking about loving brothers. So maybe we need to dig down into that. What does it mean to love brothers? First of all, do you understand in framing the question, you're essentially asking, who is it permissible for me to hate? And you're not the first to ask it. In fact, one of the religious elite, people who might be sitting in a church, if they lived in modern times, asked Jesus one time when he was talking about the key core commandment, loving one another, loving your neighbor as yourself. And one of the religious elites said, well, who's my neighbor? In other words, who do I have permission to hate? And the answer Jesus gave through the telling of a story called the Good Samaritan was no one. No one. Now, in context, in context, Jesus is speaking to a church, and he is saying to the church, you need to love each other. There's no denying that. That's what he's saying. And it's an important word to hear, because sometimes churches that claim the name of Jesus can be characterized by a remarkable lack of love for one another. There seems to be a group of people growing in social media <laughs> who believe it is a spiritual gift to beat up the bride of Christ, to be very critical of the church, and in being very critical of the church, holding themselves up as apparently as the paragon of virtue. Well, let me tell you what, I love my wife dearly. We have been married for 30 years, which says way more about her than it does me. <laughs> and if you heard me talk about her the way some people talk about the church, you would conclude that we were in trouble. It's good for us to hear that we need to manifest the love of Christ primarily for one another. But by extension, you can't get around the fact that, that John obviously means we should love everyone, that everyone is in a sense the object of the love of Christ. And the reason that I would say that is because Jesus... Jesus 
manifested a love not just for his disciples, but for everyone that he encountered, everyone that he came across. He demonstrated a complete and total love for. There there was no one that Jesus dismissed. He obviously, in everything he did, made others the object of God's love. So, So we can't get off the hook here. We can't just set apart sections of our lives where it is permissible to hate. And instead, we have to to see that all of our lives is to be a platform for the love of God. So two things we need to see here today. First, we need to see that the source of radical love is Christ. We are not being asked by a spiritual Barney the Dinosaur to love people and be nice and clean up, clean up everywhere you go. That's not what we're being asked to do. Because we'll fail at it. There are certain ways that you could cross me or cross my family and I'm going to react in my flesh in a way that doesn't manifest the love of God. It's always there. That root of hatred is always in the human heart. So what we are being called to do here is not find within us the source of good love. What we are being asked to do is to remember that when you give your life to Christ Jesus as Savior, the fundamental reality of your life is that you become a vehicle for the very life of Christ so that your life begins to reflect the life that Jesus would live if he were you. This is what he again means in verse 6, biting in him so that his life can, can run out of us. So what we are being challenged and what we are being asked to do is let the love of Jesus flow through us to become a platform for the love of Jesus so that everyone that we encounter becomes an object, a target for the love of God. Now again, I get how the human heart works because I've got one. And so... We're always trying to negotiate our way out of a pickle when we are confronted with hard words. And the way that a lot of people negotiate themselves out of a pickle with this kind of stuff is to say, well, you're saying Jesus loved people, but he also called people hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, dirty dishes. He got angry one time and he, and he flipped over tables. That doesn't seem super loving to me. And so you excuse your hostility toward anybody that doesn't agree with you perfectly as just keeping it real. Well, first of all, congratulations on attaining to the level of perfect judge of righteousness just like Jesus. By the way, that was sarcasm. (laughs) You're not going to do it. But let me just... Let me just pull the one piece of that Jenga nonsense out that'll cause the whole thing to collapse. Did Jesus love the hypocrites, the blind guides, the whitewashed tombs full of dead men bones, the dirty dishes? Did he love the ones whose table he overturned? Well, of course he did. How do I know that? Because salvation was offered by his disciples through the blood of the one whose execution they ordered. Some of the earliest messages of the Christian church went something like this. Jerusalem, you killed him. 
but you did it in ignorance. And now the blood of his sacrifice can atone for that sin. See, that's otherworldly. To be put upon and abused in the worst possible way and to still love is the example of Christ even when he has to call out sin. You never doubt the love of Jesus. This is the reason you can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. This demands the life of Christ in me. The source of radical love is Christ. But let us not lose sight of the fact that the testimony of radical love is conclusive. If characterized by radical love, there is reason to deduce that I belong to Christ. And if my life is not characterized by radical love, then it calls into question the authenticity of my profession of saving faith in Jesus. And again, we begin to negotiate. Well, I mean, how far does this go, really? I mean, clearly, I don't have to love my garbage man like I love my neighbor, like I love my family. I mean, Jesus isn't saying that, is he? Well, yeah. Yeah, he is. He's not saying you can love people less. There may be different responsibilities. I have a different responsibility with my love for my family than I do my garbage collector. But my default reaction to anybody I encounter needs to be a radical, self-giving, other-centered, sacrificial kind of love. And any attempt at equivocation smells of smoke and sulfur comes from hell. It doesn't come from God. And so what do we do? I mean, I mean how, how, do we, how do we begin to figure this out? And I really have. I, I have been thinking about this uh, for weeks because this message has been written for weeks. I mean, how do, how do we figure out where we are with this? And what has come to me recently are just a few questions, diagnostics to ask ourselves. Would people look at the overall character of your life, your social media feeds, how you respond to people with whom you disagree, and conclude that you have enemies? I'm not saying we'll conclude you have strongly held beliefs. I have strongly held beliefs. I mean, strongly held beliefs that put me at odds with culture. I believe that life begins at conception. I believe in traditional gender roles. I also believe in human dignity, past birth, and in the treatment of people who aren't like us with with love and respect. I, I, I have strongly held beliefs that put me at odds with culture. Sometimes put me at odds with church culture, but put me at odds with culture. But would people who disagree with me conclude I didn't love them? 
that's something to think about. Would people conclude that you have enemies? Make it even simpler. Would people who disagree with you conclude that you would even accept them as friends? Another question. When you encounter someone with whom you disagree, is your purpose persuasion or winning? I, I, I submit to you that social media has made us mic droppy. I'm going to give you a sound bite. You're destroyed as long as no one actually questions it. You're just, just you're competitive in every interaction to beat somebody. I have to ask myself that question. It, it may surprise you. I'm somewhat competitive. And when you're doing that, folks, you are not manifesting the radical, others-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love of Jesus. And when that happens, it needs to set off a siren in our life that says, this is not good. This is not good. And too often it doesn't. Too often what it does is it cues us to look for the applause of people who agree with us and not help others and not love others. So there's a couple of things. I mean, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to ask ourselves if our lives is characterized by this radical, other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial kind of love. And if it's not, we need to do serious business with Jesus. Because at the very least, it says we're spiritually sick. And at most, according to John's word, not Derek's, it calls into question everything about the authenticity of our faith. But, but secondly, and I didn't do this in the early service, but I want to do it here. We need to be thinking about how we can structure our life to where Jesus can get out. And if we are structuring our lives around our animosity towards culture or things we don't like, then it's keeping Jesus from being able to get out. And um, actually, I think a month from today, I think it starts the 26th of February. When does, when does Lent start? 26th of February? 26th of February. Lent starts. What is Lent? Lent's an opportunity for me to begin to, to focus my attention towards the cross, to prepare my heart for Easter, and more and more churches like ours are encouraging people to, to, to spend some time preparing their hearts through a Lenten observance. And a lot of times that is some kind of, of fasting, some kind of relinquishment of something for a spiritual purpose. And maybe... Maybe one of the things that you need to do to let the love of Jesus come out is to say, you know, for Lent, I'm logging off all my social media. I'm just not going to feed my, my heart with argument. Maybe you decide to lose the channel that you prefer to watch, right or left. If that's droning on, 
24-7 in your house, if that's the background noise in your house, then you have a constant stew of hatred going on that's going to rub off on you. Maybe you need to, to, to log off. Maybe this, on a very personal level, maybe there's somebody in your life who is the complete opposite of everything that you stand for. Maybe your Lenten observance needs to be developing a relationship with them. You know, like Jesus would have. For the purpose of showing them the light of the gospel. These are just some things that we can do. And we need to. Because our lives as followers of Jesus need to be characterized by radical, other-centered, self-giving, sacrificial love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.